You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may your word be spoken. May your word be heard. May your word continue to transform us in body and spirit into the image of your Son in whose name we now pray, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Good morning to everyone, or it's afternoon, I guess, and uh, what a delight and privilege to be uh, with all of you today. Thank you to Craig, to the leadership of the Advent, to all of you for letting me be with you. Um, It's a wonderful blessing for me and for my wife, Annette. I want to talk uh, today and tomorrow about two aspects of one thing, that one thing being the great offering that characterizes the universe, you could say, the whole of reality. The offering, first of all, about which I'll speak today, being God's offering of himself to us, and secondly, tomorrow, of our own offering the way that we are caught up in what God does. And this morning I want to just begin with some verses from Hebrews 10 as kind of a heading for what I'll be talking about in a moment. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. These very rich words from the letter to the Hebrews are filled with theological meaning, but on a concrete level, both uh, today and tomorrow, I want to focus on a more personal truth, and that is that our lives are all God's in every way, in every aspect. They are all God's. Now, that, of course, is a Christian truism. We are not our own. What do we have that we have not been given, as Paul says in two places? I think that the obvious is worth repeating when it comes to God. And in this case, especially because the whole drift of our existence in this fallen world is to withhold ourselves from God. And I think, as Christians especially, to withhold key parts of our lives from God that we somehow deem to be outside the sphere of our religious concern. And I think nowhere does this become more obvious than in our attitudes towards the death of Christ. On the one hand, the Christian tradition has focused on Jesus' significance most 
pointedly when it comes to his death and his death alone. And the cross, after all, is the great symbol of our faith and has been so for millennia. And that is, indeed, as it should be. But I also think that this focus has been voracious, if you will, with respect to the fullness of Christ's existence as it touches our own. We will say things like, and again, quite properly, Christ dies and takes away our sin and guilt. Christ dies and takes away the sting of death, and so on. But what of the years we actually live upon this earth? Does he just leave those out? What of our loves and our losses? What of our work? What of the meals that we share and the dishes from them that we scrub? What of the pictures we hang on our walls and the laughter and tears that are spread through our days? Or our our tasks, what of them? one by one by one, that form the fibers of our hours. These have actually often been quite difficult for Christians to fold into the deep recesses of the cross, despite our awareness that so much of who we are, frankly, is left outside the reach of its breath, at least experientially. So today I want simply to reiterate how the death of Christ is not just a singular point or event, but rather the culmination of an entire life, as any death is, our own included. And hence, how the death of Christ is in fact the enwrapping of the whole of our lives, in its minutes, its hours, its days and tasks, into the one self-offering, of God to us. So the emphasis is on wholeness, on everythingness, on allness. It is grace, I think, and a deep grace to see how this is so. In short, today let us reflect upon the way that God gets to the whole of our lives through the death of cross. And tomorrow, how we get to this supreme offering of God, the death of Christ, through the whole of our lives. And so from Hebrews, as we just heard, I come, Jesus says to his Father, I come. I come to do what? Well, to die for sinful human beings, to offer my body, he says. And this is the great announcement of Good Friday. For us, he dies. The Son of God tastes death for every human being, says Hebrews in chapter 2. For us and for our salvation, says the creed, pro nobis, as the reformers like to stress in the Latin version of the creed, for us. And the hymn we just sang elaborates on this and, as it were, pulls us away from limiting for us to the cross alone and thereby underlines rather how the cross is the end point the culminating point for a host of for uses. For us baptized, as we say. For us, he bore the holy fast and hungered sore. For us, temptation sharp he knew. For us, the tempter overthrew. For us, he prayed. For us, he taught. For us, 
his daily works he wrought. For us, by wicked men betrayed, for us, in crown and thorns arrayed, he bore the shameful cross in death. For us, his dying breath, for us, he rose again from death. For us, he went on high. For us, he sent his spirit here to guide, to strengthen, and to, sh- to cheer. For us, for us, for us, for us. What appears here in this hymn, rightly, is a sweeping life story. Jesus' whole life, from birth to ascension, his thoughts, his formulated words, the gnawing of hunger, the inward turn of his heart to his Father, a glance of compassion, the touch upon a shoulder, the reading of Scripture before a crowd, letters traced in the sand with his finger, a meal shared, and a song sung with others for us. His death for us, yes, but the whole of his life for us as well. Now, there are many ways to consider Jesus' death in terms of its scriptural form, and many have to do, indeed, with sacrifice, the sacrifice of death, And these are often presented in terms of prophecies from the Old Testament, well and good. But let me suggest two other ways to consider Jesus' death in utterly scriptural terms. And the first is simply that of a life itself. Jesus' death is part of his life. That's all. Which means that's everything. As I said a moment ago, this is true of our deaths as well, our own, need to emphasize. We tend to separate our deaths from our lives, as if our deaths are separate from who we are and have been. We carry on our lives, and then comes the bell that rings somewhere from the outside of us and brings our lives to a close, like recess. And I need to say that historically, Christians have long sought to counter this very natural attitude we have towards our death, of death being some kind of external rule imposed on us from elsewhere. It is that in a way, but more deeply, I think, our deaths are really a kind of mirror of our lives. They come from within us. They well up our deaths, well up out of who we already are, and they reflect how we live, have lived, live today and tomorrow. So that the tradition of preparing for death, and not just when one is old, is a long one. And such preparation involves not only attitudes, a sense of humility, of not putting too much stress on things that are transient and so on, hopefulness, but also a focus on the activities that can shape such attitudes, generosity, forgiveness, for instance, both of which encourage and depend on a sense of God's greater gifts to us, greater than our small moments and more wonderful than our small pleasures. So Jesus' death is thus, as I said, a culmination, not an addition to his life. His death shows his life and takes it all up. He was for us on the cross because he was for us in every small and large thing he did over the 30-plus years of his existence. 
And the Gospels speak of this in different ways. For example, there's the whole notion of the journey. Jesus' ministry is in various ways in the Gospels presented to us as one long journey to Jerusalem. And thus, the cross emerges only at the end of a path that has been traveled. And so in Luke, he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox Herod, Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. The three-day motif of this journey is very important. It appears in Jesus' youth when he is lost from his family for three days before he is found teaching in the temple. It's the length of time that the crowds follow Jesus and become hungry and then receive from his hands the miracle of the loaves and the fish. Three days is a journey through time, the time it takes for Jacob to enrich himself at Laban's expense in Genesis, the time it takes for Joseph's fellow prisoners to have their fortunes settled by Pharaoh later in Genesis, the time and distance Israel must travel from Egypt to Sinai to sacrifice to God. Three days is a scriptural figure for a whole life. And Jesus' journeys these three days from Bethlehem, if you will, to Egypt, to Nazareth, to Capernaum, to Jerusalem, and in the church, the ends of the earth, as a kind of three-day journey. The letter to the Hebrews describes the coming of Jesus in terms, of course, of sacrifice, as I said. A temple, a priest, an offering. But an offering of what? Of his whole life, of his whole self. For the very use of Psalm 40, which Hebrews quotes here, lo, I come, marks a passageway, a traversal, a distance in time, a life. His coming down from heaven, his coming into the world, his coming among parents and laborers, his coming within a desperate escape to a foreign land as an infant, his coming into Israel anew, his coming into a home and into a city and amongst relatives and crowds, his coming to disciples, his coming to the sick, his coming to enemies, his coming to power, is coming to weakness. Lo, I come. That's what he's talking about. And in coming, in traveling, everything along the way is taken up and offered. For he was, as Hebrews also said, made made like his brethren, that is, made like us, all that we are, taken up and offered. To enter his death, then, we must enter Jesus' life, all of it. And that's why we read the Gospels as a whole. That's indeed why we read the whole Old Testament and not just the chapters about the Passion. So that's one way of looking at his death, a journey, a traversal. Let me suggest another way to look at his death in scriptural terms, and that is as water. A need not just water, but as a flood, the very flood of Noah. This, too, is a traditional way of considering death itself. 
The waters of nothingness mark the edge of God's creative act at the beginning of Genesis. And when God seeks to purge the earth of violence and evil, it is a flood that he uses, reaching back to that original nothingness and engulfing all within it again, save Noah and his remnant family. But it is the allness of the flood that is so important here. The water seeps everywhere, into every field, every wood, every valley, up every peak. As we know from broken pipes in our own homes, alas, water can secretly seep through the walls and down beams and through crevices until finally, if left unchecked, it has covered everything. The waters have overwhelmed me, the psalmist cries. And so Jesus actually characterizes his own death in the image of Jonah, whose cry from the belly of the fish you will remember. The waters compassed me about even to the soul, Jonah cries. And that, says Jesus, is the sign of who he is. So death isn't just a moment, however cutting, however decisive. It's a kind of enveloping embrace that takes everything in, Three days and nights, now the two images come together, in the belly of the whale, just like the journey of a lifetime. When we are baptized into Jesus' death, as Paul puts it in Romans, everything about our life is now touched by this embrace self-giving, like water, like the flood. What changes for us now is everything about our lives, every corner, every element, Now you are alive to God, Paul concludes in Romans 6 after speaking about our baptisms. Now you're alive to him, having gone into his death. The enveloping waters of Jesus' death are as broad as the journey he took and the land he traversed and the days he lived. I want to stress this very traditional announcement about the Son of God, because though traditional enough, It is easy to think of the for us as only for a moment, for our judgment, for our endings, for those particular hard days, for death itself. And thus it's easy for us to think of the Son of God as, in a real sense, a momentary Savior, a divine grace and power that is aimed just at a special, though finally limited, part of my existence. But if that is so, though he says, lo, I come, he does not, in fact, come to the wakings of each of our mornings. He does not come for my hours of rest or restlessness. He does not come in what I eat or in what I read. He does not come to my words spoken to spouse or children or colleagues. He does not come to my spending and my owing my labors and my leisures, my street or my school, my neighbors across the way or across the fence, my days and minutes, as child or youth, as a strong woman or a weak man. He does not come, that is, for us, but only for part of us, a moment of us. And I confess that sometimes I myself feel that my life is unimportant to God. Most people do. Drudgery browsing the internet, watching TV, worrying, distracting. But how could I think such a thing if truly he comes 
for us. People who work in prison ministry, and I've done a little, will often tell you how challenging it is, not just because of the setting and the stories one hears and encounters, but because of what the setting and stories, that is the people, reveal about one's own existence. Believers in prison, in my very limited experience, have been stripped of all the things that the Son of God, they think, seemingly did not come to in our more habitual and blinkered vision. Family, work, the bank account, play, rest. All that's gone for them in prison. So what's left? Well, only the whole extent of now, the now seemingly empty days and minutes where the Lord is desperately needed, sitting in a small cell, waiting in the yard, sitting, waiting, sitting, waiting. That is, what is left is what was always there, but now being made to call out to God for some presence. And you finally realize it. I need thee every hour, as the old hymn goes. But of course, it's not just a prison song. It's not just for prisoners. It's a revelation of the great for us that the Lord came to, waking, showering, dressing, eating, standing around, fearing the person in the yard, protecting, waiting. In prison, I need thee here every minute, every hour, just as you and I need the Lord, though we don't recognize it, though we've dismissed it. When I first heard all of this from an inmate who said, I need God every minute of my day if I'm going to survive here, I was horrified. What kind of life is that? I wondered. Every minute of the day? But then I've come to realize that this is the life of Jesus Christ, tested in every way as are we for us. He filled his life with every minute of our day. Like the bottom of an hourglass, such is his soul, but not waiting for our minutes to drop into them through the glass from up to down, but jumping into every grain before they fall. That is the wonder. Every single one of them, he suffered his life with every grain of our existence. Lo, I come, and the many children you have given me. There's a popular contemporary song that starts this way. He came to die. God in the form of Christ is a sacrifice to appease God's wrath and make us right. And what I'm trying to say is that's only partly true. For the Lord Jesus Christ did not come only to die. He came to live for us. He offered his whole life so that we might live in the whole of our lives in him. And the Book of Common Prayer's great litany, as you may recall, begins just this way. By the mystery of thy holy incarnation, by thy holy nativity and circumcision, by thy baptism, fasting, temptation, good Lord, deliver us. And then it goes on. The litany begins this way and in the prayers that follow because all of who we are, and not only our deaths, beseech God for his mercy. Our family, our children, servants in the litany, neighbors, magistrates, monarchs, clergy, 
and enemies. We pray for them all in the litany because the Lord God of the universe touched each one of them first in the great I come of Jesus Christ. All the transformations that the Christian faith stresses in discipleship emerge only by Christ touching the everything of our lives. God's self-offering is not a single external act done in a given moment to us. His offering is rather unentering us. No one else does this because no one else can do it. God offers himself so completely that he becomes one of us and with us. It is no surprise that the closest image of this reality given in Scripture is marriage between a man and a woman, as Paul writes in Ephesians, the two becoming one flesh, quoting from Genesis. But even married couples cannot do this fully by a long shot. For God wants our life to be his, because, of course, it is his in every way already. He lived it, not to us, but for us, so that now we can finally live it, let go of it, and be with him. To that I'll turn tomorrow. May the Lord's blessing be with us all. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.